This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. It's fuzzy. It's woolly. I know it's summertime, but you know what's nice? Uh, something to get for someone later this year. Uh, maybe something to wear around your cold apartment uh, in the early mornings. Uh, maybe you've got cold concrete floors. Maybe you live in New Zealand or Chile or someone else, bleh, somewhere else that's cool this time of year. Who knows? But uh, BunnySlippers.com has a wide array of slippers to choose from, all kinds of interests and animals and all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You'll find something you'll like at BunnySlippers.com. Yeah, it's that simple, BunnySlippers.com. Highland Cow Slipper, it's a big woolly bull, and I love my Highland Cow Slippers. Wear them all the time in the studio, which does have a chilly floor even in the summer, especially when I crank up the AC, because I'm a baby when it comes to heat. Unless I'm working in a kitchen, then I forget to drink water and pass out uh, sometime around 12 hours. <laughs> anyway, that's one reason DB Spitzer doesn't work in kitchens much anymore. Uh, let's also talk about this month uh, is the end of June, and we're going to finish that up with some W.E.B. Du Bois. So if you hear any noise, it's just me and Du Bois. Hit me. Um, so, yeah. And that was a uh, Parliament uh, reference. And if you want to learn more about Parliament, go to your local library or check this out. Alexa, play Parliament. Siri, play Parliament. And now, now you know, <laughs> somewhere in your house, maybe, uh, a robot is playing music for you. Enjoy. So here we go. Uh, this show is always brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and listeners like you buying our cool t-shirts that you'll find on PGTTCM.com. You can check the show notes to find out where to go, or you can just simply, I don't know, find us on Facebook. We've got a link somewhere to somewhere. You buy shirts. It keeps the show going. Makes me happy. Makes you happy. Everyone gets something. We also have a Patreon thing going on and a patron thing going on. Not really much going on with either of those, so do what you want with those. Text me, let me know if you do subscribe to any of those so I can mention your name and say, hey, check this person out. Also, if you have questions about anything about the show, if you want to talk about anything, we've got a contact form at pgttcm.com. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere um, that you find your podcasts. I recommend Apple because that's where I get all my feedback from. All right, thank you. Here we go. All over the land the cotton had foamed in great white flakes under the winter sun. The silver fleece lay like a mighty mantle across the earth. Black men and mules had staggered beneath its burden, while deep songs welled in the hearts of men. For the fleece was goodly and gleaming and soft, and men dreamed of the gold it would buy. All the roads in the country had been lined with wagons, a million wagons speeding to and fro with straining mules and laughing black men bearing bubbling masses of piled white fleece. The gins were still roaring and spitting flames and smoke, fifty thousand of them in town and vale. Then horse iron throats were filled with fifteen billion pounds of white fleeced, black-specked cotton for the whirling saws to tear out the seed and fling five thousand million pounds of the silken fiber to the press. And there again the black men sang, like dark earth spirits flitting in twilight, 
The presses creaked and groaned. Closer and closer they pressed the silken fleece. It quivered, trembled, and then lay cramped, dead, and still in massive hard square bundles tied with iron strings. Out fell the heavy bales, thousand upon thousand, million upon million, until they settled over the south like some vast dull white swarm of birds. Colonel Cresswell and his son in these days had a long and earnest conversation, perforated here and there by explosions of the colonel's wrath. The colonel could not understand some things. They want us to revive the Farmer's League, he fiercely demanded. Yes, Harry calmly replied. And throw the rest of our capital after the $50,000 we've already lost? Yes, and you were fool enough to consent. Wait, father, and don't get excited. Listen, cotton is going up. Of course it's going up. Short crop and big demand. Cotton is going up, and then it's going to fall. I don't believe it. I know it. The trust has got money and credit enough to force it down. Well, what then? The colonel glared. Then somebody will corner it. The Farmer's League won't stand. Precisely. The Farmer's League can do the cornering and hold it for higher prices. Lord, son, if we only could, groaned the colonel. We can. We'll have unlimited credit. But, but, stuttered the bewildered colonel. I don't understand. Why should the trust? Nonsense, father. What's the use of understanding? Our advantage is plain, and John Taylor guarantees the thing. <laughs> Who's John Taylor? snorted the colonel. Why should we trust him? Well, said Harry slowly, he wants to marry Helen. His father grew apoplectic. I'm not saying he will, father. I'm only saying that he wants to. Harry made haste to placate the rising tide of wrath. No, southern gentlemen, began the colonel, but Harry shrugged his shoulders. Which is better, to be crushed by the trust or to escape at their expense, even if that escape involves unwarranted assumptions on the part of one of them? I tell you, father, the code of the southern gentlemen won't work on Wall Street. And I'll tell you why. There are no southern gentlemen, growled his father. The silver fleece was golden for its prices were flying aloft. Mr. Caldwell told Colonel Cresswell that he confidently expected 12-cent cotton. The crop is excellent and small, scarcely 10 million bales, he declared. The price is bound to go up. Colonel Cresswell was hesitant, even doubtful. The demand for cotton at high prices usually fell off rapidly and he had heard rumors of curtailed mill production. While then he hoped for high prices, he advised the Farmers League to be on guard. Mr. Caldwell seemed to be right, for cotton rose to ten cents a pound, ten and a half, eleven, and then the South began to see visions and to dream dreams. Yes, my dear, said Mr. Maxwell, whose lands lay next to the Cresswells on the northwest. Yes, if cotton goes to 12 or 13 cents, as seems probable, I think we can begin the new house. For Mrs. Maxwell's cherished dream was a pillared mansion like the Cresswell's. Mr. Tolliver looked at his house and barns. Well, daughter, if this crop sells at 12 cents, I'll be on my feet again, and I won't have to sell that land to the nigger school after all. Once out of the clutch of the Cresswell's, 
Well, I think we can have a coat of paint. And he laughed, <laughs> as he had not laughed in ten years. Down in the bottoms, west of the swamp, a man and woman were figuring painfully on an old slate. He was light brown, and she was yellow. Honey, he said tremblingly, I believe we can do it. If cotton goes to twelve cents, we can pay the mortgage. Two miles north of the school, an old black woman was shouting and waving her arms. If cotton goes to twelve cents, we can pay out and be free. And she threw her apron over her head and wept, gathering her children in her arms. But even as she cried, a flash and tremor shook the south. Far away to the north, a great spider sat weaving his web. The office looked down from the clouds on lower Broadway and was soft with velvet and leather. Swift, silent messengers hurried in and out, and Mr. Easterly, deciding the time was ripe, called his henchman to him. Taylor, we're ready. Go south. And John Taylor rose, shook hands silently, and went. As he entered Cresswell's plantation store three days later, a colored woman and a little boy turned sadly away from the counter. No, auntie, the clerk was telling her. Calico is too high. Can't let you have any till we see how your cotton comes out. I, I just wanted a, a bit. I, I promised the boy. Gone, gone. Why, Mr. Taylor? And the little boy burst into tears while he was hurried out. Tightening up on the tenants? Asked Taylor. Yes, these niggers are mighty extravagant. Besides, cotton fell a little today. Eleven to ten and three false. Just a flurry, I reckon. Had you heard? Mr. Taylor said he had heard, and he hurried on. Next morning, the long shining wires of that great Broadway web trembled and flashed again, and Cotton went to ten cents. No house this year, I fear, quoth Mr. Maxwell bitterly. The next day, nine and a half was the quotation, and men began to look at each other and ask questions. People says the crop is larger than the government estimate, said Tolliver, and added, There'll be no painting this year. He looked toward the Smith School and thought of the $5,000 waiting, but he hesitated. John Taylor had carefully mentioned $7,000 as a price he was willing to pay, and perhaps more. Was Cresswell back of Taylor? Tolliver was suspicious and moved to delay matters. It's manipulation and speculation in New York, said Colonel Cresswell, and the Farmers League must begin operations. The local paper soon had an editorial on our distinguished fellow citizen Colonel Cresswell and his efforts to revive the Farmers League. It was understood that Colonel Cresswell was risking his whole private fortune to hold the price of cotton, and some effort seemed to be needed, for cotton dropped to nine cents within a week. Swift negotiations ensued, and a meeting of the executive committee of the Farmers League was held in Montgomery. A system of warehouses and warehouse certificates was proposed. But that will cost money, responded each of the dozen big landlords who composed the committee, whereupon Harry Cresswell introduced John Taylor, who represented 30 millions of Southern Bank stock. I promise you credit at any reasonable amount, said Mr. Taylor. I believe in cotton. The present price is abnormal. And Mr. Taylor knew whereof he spoke, for when he sent a cipher dispatch north, cotton dropped to eight and a half. The Farmers League leased three warehouses at Savannah, Montgomery, and New Orleans. Then silently the South gripped itself and prepared for battle. Men stopped spending, businesses grew dull, and millions of eyes were glued to the blackboards of the cotton exchange. Tighter and tighter the reins grew on the backs of the black tenants. Miss Smith, is you just got a drop of coffee to lend me? 
Mr. Cresswell won't give me nan at the store, and I's just starving for some, said Aunt Rachel from over the hill. We won't get free this year, Miss Smith. Not this year, she concluded plaintively. Cotton fell to seven and a half cents, and the muttered protest became angry denunciation. Why was it? Who was doing it? Harry Cresswell went to Montgomery. He was getting nervous. The thing was too vast. He could not grasp it. It set his head in a whirl. Harry Cresswell was not a bad man. Are there any bad men? He was a man who, from the day he first wheedled his black mammy into submission, down to his 36th year, had seldom known what it was voluntarily to deny himself or curb a desire, to rise when he would, eat what he craved, and do what the passing fancy suggested had long been his day's program. Such emptiness of life and aim had to be filled, and it was filled. He helped his father sometimes with the plantations, but he helped spasmodically and played at work. The unregulated fire of energy and delicacy of nervous poise within him continually hounded him to the verge of excess and sometimes beyond. Cool, quiet, and gentlemanly as he was by rule of his clan, the ice was thin and underneath raged unappeased fires. He craved the madness of alcohol in his veins till his delicate hands trembled of mornings. The women whom he bent above in languid, veiled-eyed homage feared lest they love him and what work was to others, gambling was to him. The cotton combine then appealed to him overpoweringly, to his passion for wealth, to his passion for gambling. But once entered upon the game, it drove him to fear and frenzy. First, it was a long game, and Harry Cresswell was not trained to waiting. And secondly, it was a game whose intricacies he did not know. In vain did he try to study the matter through. He ordered books from the North. He subscribed for financial journals. He received special telegraphic reports only to toss them away, curse his valet, and call for another brandy. After all, he kept saying to himself, what guarantee, what knowledge had he that this was not a damned Yankee trick? Now that the web was weaving its last mesh in early January, he haunted Montgomery, and on this day, when it seemed that things must culminate or he would go mad, He hastened again down to the planter's hotel and was quickly ushered to John Taylor's room. The place was filled with tobacco smoke. An electric ticker was drumming away in one corner, a telephone ringing on the desk, and messenger boys hovered outside the door and raced to and fro. Well, asked Cresswell, maintaining his composure by an effort. How are things? Great, returned Taylor. League holds three million bales and controls five. It's the biggest corner in years. But how's cotton? Ticker says six and three-fourths. Cresswell sat down abruptly opposite Taylor, looking at him fixedly. That last drop means liabilities of a hundred thousand to us. Exactly, Taylor blandly admitted. Beads of sweat gathered on Cresswell's forehead. He looked at the scrawny Iron Man opposite, who had already forgotten his presence. He ordered whiskey and, taking paper and pencil, began to figure, drinking as he figured. Slowly, the blood crept out of his white face, leaving it whiter, and went surging and pounding in his heart. Poverty. That was what those figures spelled. Poverty. Unclothed, wineless poverty. To dig and toil like a nigger from morning until night, and to give up horses and carriages and women. That was what they spelled. How much farther will it drop? he asked harshly. Taylor did not look up. 
Can't tell, he said. Afraid not much, though. He glanced through a telegram. No, damn it. Outside meals are low. They'll stampede soon. Meantime, we'll buy. But Taylor, here are 100,000 offered at six and three-fourths. I tell you, Taylor, Cresswell half arose. Done, cried Taylor. Six and one-half, clicked the machine. Cresswell arose from his chair by the window and came slowly to the wide, flat desk where Taylor was working feverishly. He sat down heavily in the chair opposite and tried quietly to regain his self-control. The liabilities of the Cresswells already amounted to half the value of their property at a fair market valuation. The cotton for which they had made debts was still falling in value. Every fourth of a cent fall meant, he figured it again tremblingly, meant 100,000 more of liabilities. If cotton fell to six, he hadn't a cent on earth. If it stayed there, my God, he felt a faintness stealing over him but he beat it back and gulped down another glass of fiery liquor. Then the one protecting instinct of his clan gripped him. Slowly, quietly, his hand moved back until it grasped the hilt of the big Colt's revolver that was ever with him. His thin, white hand became suddenly steady as it slipped the weapon beneath the shadow of the desk. If it goes to six, he kept murmuring. Well ruined, if it goes to six, if... Tick sounded the wheel, and the sound reverberated like sudden thunder in his ears. His hand was iron, and he raised it slightly. Six, said the wheel. His finger quivered, and a half. Hail, yelled Taylor. She's turned. There'll be the devil to pay now. A messenger burst in, and Taylor scowled. She's loose in New York, a regular mob in New Orleans, and, and hawk, by God. There's something doing here. Damn it, I wish we'd got another million bales. Let's see. We've got, he figured while the wheel whirred. Seven, seven and a half, eight, eight and a half. Cresswell listened, staggered to his feet, his face crimson and his hair wild. My God, Taylor, he gasped. I'm, I'm a half a million ahead, great heavens. The ticker whirred. Eight and three-fourths, nine, nine and a half, ten. Then it stopped dead. Exchange closed, said Taylor. We've cornered the market, all right. Cornered it. Do you hear, Cresswell? We got over half the crop, and we can send prices to the North Star. You, why, I figure you Cresswells are worth at least 750000 above liabilities this minute. And John Taylor leaned back and lighted a big black cigar. I've made a million or so myself, he added reflectively. Cresswell leaned back in his chair. His face had gone white again, and he spoke slowly to still the tremor in his voice. I've gambled before. I've gambled on carts and on horses. I've gambled for money and women, but, but not on cotton, eh? Well, I don't know about carts and such, but they can't beat cotton. And say, John Taylor... You're my friend. Cresswell stretched his hand across the desk, and as he bent forward, the pistol crashed to the floor. End of chapter 18. Rich. That was the thought that awakened Harry Cresswell to a sense of endless well-being. Rich. No longer the mirage and semblance of wealth, the memory of opulence, 
the shadow of homage without the substance of power. No, now the wealth was real, cold, hard dollars, and in piles. How much? He laughed aloud as he turned on his pillow. What did he care? Enough. Enough. Not less than half a million, perhaps three quarters of a million. Perhaps. Was not cotton still rising? A whole round million. That would mean from 25 to 50,000 a year. Great heavens. And he'd been starving on a bare couple of thousand and trying to keep up appearances. Today, the Cresswells were almost millionaires. Aye, and he might be married to more millions. He sat up with a start. Today, Mary was going north. He had quite forgotten it in the wild excitement of the cotton corner. He had neglected her. Of course, there was always the hovering doubt as to whether he really wanted her or not. She had the form and carriage. Her beauty, while not startling, was young and fresh and firm. On the other hand, there was about her a certain independence that he did not like to associate with women. She had thoughts and notions of the world which were, to his southern training, hardly feminine. And yet, even they piqued him and spurred him like the sight of an untrained colt. He had not seen her falter yet beneath his glances or tremble at his touch. All this he desired, ardently desired. But did he desire her as a wife? He rather thought that he did, and if so, he must speak today. There was his father, too, to reckon with. Colonel Cresswell, with the perversity of the simple-minded, had taken the sudden bettering of their fortunes as his own doing. He had foreseen, he had stuck it out, his credit had pulled the thing through, and the trust had learned a thing or two about southern gentlemen. Toward John Taylor he perceptibly warmed. His business methods were such as a Cresswell could never stoop to, but he was a man of his word, and Colonel Cresswell's correspondence with Mr. Easterly opened his eyes to the beneficent ideals of northern capital. At the same time, he could not consider the Easterlies and the Taylors and such folk as the social equals of the Cresswells, and his prejudice on this score must still be reckoned with. Below, Mary Taylor lingered on the porch in strange uncertainty. Harry Cresswell would soon be coming downstairs. Did she want him to find her? She liked him, frankly, undisguisedly, but from the love she knew to be so near her heart she recoiled in perturbation. He wooed her, whether consciously or not, she was always uncertain, with every quiet attention and subtle deference, with a devotion seemingly quite too delicate for words. He not only fetched her flowers, but flowers that chimed with day and gown and season, almost with mood. He had a woman's premonitions in fulfilling her wishes, his hands, if they touched her, were soft and tender, and yet he gave a curious impression of strength and poise and will. Indeed, in all things, he was in her eyes a gentleman in the fine old-fashioned aristocracy of the term. Her own heart voiced all he did not say, and pleaded for him to her own confusion. And yet in her heart lay the awful doubt, and the words kept ringing in her ears, You will marry this man, but heaven help you if you do. So it was that on this day when she somehow felt he would speak. His footsteps on the stairs filled her with sudden panic. Without a word she slipped behind the pillars and ran down among the oaks and sauntered out upon the big road. He caught the white flutter of her dress and smiled indulgently as he watched and waited and lightly puffed his cigarette. 
The morning was splendid with that first delicious languor of the spring which breathes over the Southland in February. Mary Taylor filled her lungs, lifted her arms aloft, and turning, stepped into the deep shadow of the swamp. Abruptly, the air, the day, the scene about her subtly changed. She felt a closeness and a tremor, a certain brooding terror in the languid, somber winds. The gold of the sunlight faded to a sickly green, and the earth was black and burned. A moment she paused and looked back. She caught the man's silhouette against the tall white pillars of the mansion, and she fled deeper into the forest, with the hush of death about her, and the silence which is one great voice. Slowly and mysteriously it loomed before her, that squat and darksome cabin which seemed to fitly set in the center of the wilderness, beside its crawling slime. She paused in sudden certainty that there lay the answer to her doubts and mistrust. She felt impelled to go forward and ask what. She did not know, but something to still this war in her bosom. She had seldom seen Elspeth. She had never been in her cabin. She had felt an inconquerable aversion for the evil hag. She felt it now and shivered in the warm breeze. As she came in full view of the door, she paused. On the step of the cabin, framed in the black doorway, stood Zora. Measured by the squat cabin, she seemed in height colossal, slim, straight as a pine, motionless with one long outstretched arm, pointing to where the path swept onward toward the town. It was too far for words, but the scene lay strangely clear and sharp-cut in the green mystery of the sunlight. Before that motionless, fateful figure crouched a slighter, smaller woman, disheveled, clutching her breast. She bent and rose, hesitated, seemed to plead, then turning, clasped in passionate embrace the child whose head was hid in Zora's gown. Next instant she was staggering along the path whither Zora pointed. Slowly the sun was darkened, and plaintive murmurings pulsed through the wood. The oppression and fear of the swamp redoubled in Mary Taylor. Zora gave no sign of having seen her. She stood tall and still, and the little golden-haired girl still sobbed in her gown. Mary Taylor looked up into Zora's face, then paused in awe. It was a face she did not know. It was neither the beautifully mischievous face of the girl, nor the pain-stricken face of the woman. It was a face cold and mask-like, regular and comely, clothed in a mighty calm, yet subtly, masterfully veiling behind itself depths of unfathomed misery and wild revolt. All this lay in its darkness. Good morning, Miss Taylor. Mary, who was wont to teach this woman, so lately a child, searched in vain for words to address her now. She stood bare-haired and hesitating in the pale green light of the darkened morning. It seemed fit that a deep groan of pain should gather itself from the mysterious depths of the swamp and drop like a pall on the black portal of the cabin. But it brought Mary Taylor back to a sense of things, and under a sudden impulse she spoke. Is, is anything the matter? she asked nervously. Elspeth is sick, replied Zora. Is she very sick? Yes, she has been called, solemnly returned the dark young woman. Mary was puzzled. Called, she repeated vaguely. We heard the great cry in the night, and Elspeth says it is the end. It did not occur to Mary Taylor to question this mysticism. She all at once understood, perhaps read the riddle in the dark, melancholy eyes that so steadily regarded her. Then you can leave the place, Zora? she exclaimed gladly. Yes, I could leave. 
And you will. Uh, I don't know, but the place looks evil. It is evil. And yet you will stay? Zora's eyes were now fixed far above the woman's head, and she saw a human face forming itself in the vast rafters of the forest. Its eyes were wet with pain and anger. Perhaps, she answered. The child furtively uncovered her face and looked at the stranger. She was blue-eyed and golden-haired. Whose child is this? queried Mary curiously. Zora looked coldly down upon the child. It is Bertie's. Her mother is bad. She's gone. I sent her. She and the others like her. But where have you sent them? To hell. Mary Taylor started under the shock. Impulsively, she moved forward with hands that wanted to stretch themselves in appeal. Zora, Zora, you mustn't go too. But the black girl drew proudly back. I am there, she returned with unmistakable simplicity of absolute conviction. The white woman shrank back. Her heart was wrung. She wanted to say more, to explain, to ask, to help. There came welling to her lips a flood of things that she would know. But Sora's face again was masked. I must go, she said before Mary could speak. Goodbye. And the dark groaning depths of the cabin swallowed her. With a satisfied smile, Harry Cresswell had seen the northern girl disappear toward the swamp, for it is significant when maidens run from lovers. But maidens should also come back. And when, after the lapse of many minutes, Mary did not reappear, he followed her footsteps to the swamp. He frowned as he noted the footprints pointing to Elspeth's. What did Mary Taylor want there? A fear started within him, and something else. He was suddenly aware that he wanted this woman, intensely. At the moment, he would have turned heaven and earth to get her. He strode forward, and the wood rose darkly green above him. A long, low, distant moan seemed to sound upon the breeze and after it came Mary Taylor. He met her with tender solicitude, and she was glad to feel his arm beneath hers. I've been searching for you, he said after a silence. You should not wander here alone. It is dangerous. Why dangerous? she asked. Wandering negras and even wild beasts in the forest depths and malaria. See, you tremble now. But not from malaria, she slowly returned. He caught an unfamiliar note in his voice, and a wild desire to justify himself before this woman clamored in his heart. With it, too, came a cooler calculating intuition that frankness alone would win her now, and all hazards he must win, and he cast the die. Miss Taylor, he said, I want to talk to you. I have wanted to for a year. He glanced at her. She was white and silent, but she did not tremble. He went on. I have hesitated because I do not know that I have a right to to speak or explain to, to a good woman. He felt her arm tighten on his and continued. You have been to Elspeth's cabin. It is an evil place and has meant evil for this community and for me. Elspeth was my mother's favorite servant and my own mammy. My mother died when I was ten and left me to her tender mercies. She let me have my way and encouraged the bad in me. It's a wonder I escaped total ruin. Her cabin became a rendezvous for drinking and carousing. I told my father, but he, in lazy indifference, declared the place no worse than all Negro cabins and did nothing. I ceased my visits. 
Still, she tried every lure and set false stories going among Negroes, even when I sought to rescue Zora. I tell you this because I know you have heard evil rumors. I have not been a good man, Mary, but I love you, and you can make me good. Perhaps no other appeal would have stirred Mary Taylor. She was in many respects an inexperienced girl, but she thought she knew the world. She knew that Harry Cresswell was not all he should be, and she knew too that many other men were not. Moreover, she argued, he had not had a fair chance. All the school ma'am in her leaped to his teaching. What he needed was a superior person like herself. She loved him, and she deliberately put her arms about his neck and lifted her face to be kissed. Back by the place of the silver fleece, they wandered across the big road up to the mansion. On the steps stood John Taylor and Helen Cresswell hand in hand, and they all smiled at each other. The colonel came out smiling, too, with the paper in his hands. Easterly is right, he beamed. The stalk of the cotton combine. He paused at the silence and looked up. The smile faded slowly, and the red blood mounted to his forehead. Anger struggled back of surprise, but before it burst forth silently, the colonel turned, and muttering some unintelligible word, went slowly into the house and slammed the door. So for Harry Cresswell, the day burst, flamed and waned, and then suddenly went out, leaving him dull and gray. For Mary and her brother had gone north, Helen had gone to bed, and the colonel was in town. Outside, the weather was gusty and lowering with a chill in the air. He paced the room fitfully. Well, was he happy or was he happy? He gnawed his mustache, for already his quick, changeable nature was feeling the rebound from glory to misery. He was a little ashamed of his exaltation, a bit doubtful and uncertain. He had stooped low to this Yankee school ma'am, lower than he had ever stooped to a woman. Usually, while he played at loving, women groveled, for was he not a Cresswell? Would this woman recognize that fact and respect him accordingly? Then there was Zora. What has she said and hinted to Mary? The wench was always eluding and mocking him, the black devil. But, pshaw, he poured himself a glass of brandy. Was he not rich and young? The world was his. His valet knocked. Gentleman is asking if you forget to Saturday night, sir, said Sam. Cresswell walked thoughtfully to the window, swept back the curtain, and looked toward the darkness in the swamp. It lowered threateningly. Behind it, the night sky was tinged with blood. No, he said, I'm not going, and he shut out the glow. Yet he grew more and more restless. The devil danced in his veins and burned in his forehead. His hand shook. He heard a rustle of departing feet beneath his window, then a pause and a faint halloo. All right, he called, and in a moment went downstairs and out into the night. As he closed the front door, there seemed to come faintly up from the swamp a low ululation, like the prolonged cry of some wild bird or the wail of one's mourning for his dead. Within the cabin, Elspeth heard. Trembling, she swayed to her feet, a haggard, awful sight. She motioned Zora away and, stretching her hands, palms upward to the sky, cried with dry and fear-struck gasp, "'As cold!' As cold. On the bed, the child smiled in its dreaming. The red flame of the firelight set the gold to dancing in her hair. Zora shrank back into the shadows and listened. Then it came. She heard the heavy footsteps crashing through the underbrush, coming, coming, 
as from the end of the world, she shrank still farther back, and a shadow swept the door. He was a mighty man, black and white-haired, and his eyes were the eyes of death. He bent to enter the door, and then uplifting himself and stretching his great arms, his palms touched the blackened rafters. Zora started forward. Thick memories of some forgotten past came piling in upon her. Where had she known him? What was he to her? Slowly, Elspeth, with quivering hands, unwound the black and snake-like object that always guarded her breast. Without a word, he took it, and again his hands flew heavenward. With a low and fearful moan, the old woman lurched sideways, then crashed like a fallen pine upon the hearthstone. She lay still, dead. Three times the man passed his hands, wave-like above the dead. Three times he murmured and his eyes burned into the shadows where the girl trembled. Then he turned and went as he had come, his heavy feet crashing through the underbrush on and on, fainter and fainter, as to the end of the world. Zora shook herself from the trance-like horror and passed her hands across her eyes to drive out the nightmare. But no, there lay the dead upon the hearth with the firelight flashing over her, a bloated, hideous, twisted thing distorted in the rigor of death. A moment Zora looked down upon her mother. She felt the cold body whence the wandering, wrecked soul had passed. She sat down and stared death in the face for the first time. A mighty questioning arose within, a questioning and a yearning. Was Elspeth now at peace? Was death the way, the wide, dark way? She had never thought of it before, and as she thought, she crept forward and looked into the fearful face pityingly. Mammy, she whispered with bated breath. Mammy Elspeth? Out of the night came a whispered answer. Elspeth. Elspeth. Zora sprang to her feet, alert, fearful. With a swing of her arm, she pulled the great oaken door to and dropped the bar into its place. Over the dead, she spread a clean white sheet. Into the fire, she thrust pine knots. They glared in vague red and shadowy brilliance, waving and quivering and throwing up thin, swirling columns of black smoke. Then, standing beside the fireplace with the white, still corpse between her and the door, she took up her awful vigil. There came a low knocking at the door, then silence and footsteps wandering furtively about. The night seemed all footsteps and whispers. There came a louder knocking and a voice. Elspeth! Elspeth, open the door, it's me! Then muttering and wandering noises, and silence again. The child on the bed turned itself, murmuring uneasily in its dreams. And then they came. Zora froze, watching the door, wide-eyed, while the fire flamed redder. A loud, quick knock at the door. A pause, an oath, and a cry. Elspeth, open this door, damn you! A moment of waiting, and then the knocking came again, furious and long-continued. Outside, there was much trampling and swearing. Zora did not move. The child slept on, a tugging and dragging, a dull blow that set the cabin quivering. Then, bang, crack, crash. The door wavered, splintered, and dropped upon the floor. With a snarl, a crowd of some half-dozen white faces rushed forward, wavered, and stopped. The awakened child sat up and stared with wide blue eyes. Slowly, with no word, the intruders turned and went silently away, leaving but one latecomer who pressed forward. 
What damn mummery is this? he cried, and snatching at the sheet, dragged it from the black, distorted countenance of the corpse. He shuddered, but for a moment he could not stir. He felt the midnight eyes of the girl. He saw the twisted, oozing mouth of the hag, blue, black, and hideous. Suddenly, back behind there in the darkness, a shriek split the night like a sudden flash of flame, a great ringing scream that cracked and swelled and stopped. With one wild effort, the man hurled himself out the door and plunged through the darkness. Panting and cursing, he flashed his huge revolver. Bang! 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 It cracked into the night. The sweat poured from his forehead. The terror of the swamp was upon him. With a struggling and tearing in his throat, he tripped and fell, fainting under the silent oaks. End of chapter 19 The silver fleece darkly cloaked and girded lay in the cotton warehouse of the Cresswells near the store. Its silken fibers, cramped and close, shone yellow-white in the sunlight, sadly soiled yet beautiful. Many came to see Zora's twin bales as they lay handling them and questioning, while Colonel Cresswell grew proud of his possession. The world was going well with the Colonel, freed from money cares, praised for his generalship in the cotton corner, able to entertain sumptuously. He was again a southern gentleman of the older school, and so in his envied element. Yet today he frowned as he stood poking absently with his cane at the baled fleece. This marriage, or rather these marriages, were not to his liking. It was a mesalliance of a sort that pricked him tenderly. It savored grossly of bargain and sale. His neighbors regarded it with disconcerting equanimity. They seemed to think an alliance with northern millions an honor for Cresswell blood, and the colonel thumped the nearer bale vigorously. His cane slipped along the iron band suddenly, and the old man, lurching forward, clutched in space to save himself and touched a human hand. Zora, sitting shadowed on the farther bale, drew back her hand quickly at the contact and started to move away. "'Who's that?' thundered the colonel, more angry at his involuntary fright than at the intrusion. "'Hair, boys!' But Zora had come forward into the space where the sunlight of the wide front doors poured in upon the cotton bales, "'It's me, Colonel,' she said. He glared at her. She was taller and thinner than formerly, darkly transparent of skin, and her dark eyes shone in strange and dusky brilliance. Still indignant and surprised, the Colonel lifted his voice sharply. "'What the devil are you doing here? Sleeping when you ought to be at work? Get out and see here. Next week cotton chopping begins. You'll go to the fields or to the chain gang.' I'll have no more of your loafing about my place. Awaiting no reply, the colonel, already half ashamed of his vehemence, stormed out into the sunlight and climbed upon his bay mare. But Zora still stood silent in the shadow of the silver fleece, hearing and yet not hearing. She was searching for the way, groping for the threads of life, seeking almost wildly to understand the foundations of understanding, piteously asking for answer to the puzzle of life. All the while, the walls rose straight upon her and narrow. To continue in school meant charity. Yet she had nowhere to go and nothing to go with. To refuse to work for the Cresswells meant trouble for the school and perhaps a rest for herself. To work in the fields meant endless toil and a vista that opened upon death. 
Like a hunted thing, the girl turned and twisted in thought and faced everywhere the blank impossible. Cold and dreamlike without, her shut teeth held back seething fires within, and a spirit of revolt that gathered wildness as it grew. Above all flew the dream, the fantasy, the memory of the past, the vision of the future. Over and over she whispered to herself, This is not the end. This cannot be the end. Somehow, somewhere would come salvation, yet what it would be and what she expected she did not know. She sought the way, but what way and whither she did not know she dared not dream. One thing alone lay in her wild fancy like a great and wonderful fact dragging the dream to earth and anchoring it there. That was the silver fleece. Like a brooding mother, Zora had watched it. She knew how the gin had been cleaned for its pressing and how it had been baled apart and carefully covered. She knew how proud Colonel Cresswell was of it and how daily he had visitors to see it and finger the wide white wound in its side. Yes, sir. Grown on my place by my negress, sir, he assured them, and they marveled. To Zora's mind, this beautiful baled fiber was hers. It typified happiness. It was a holy thing which profane hands had stolen. When it came back to her, as come it must, she cried with clenched hands, it would bring happiness. Not the great happiness, that was gone forever, but illumination, atonement, and something of the power and the glory. So, involuntarily almost, she haunted the cotton storehouse, flitting like a dark and silent ghost in among the workmen, greeting them with her low musical voice, warding them with the cold majesty of her eyes, each day afraid of some last parting, each night triumphant. It was still there. The colonel, Zora already forgotten, rode up to the Cresswell Oaks, pondering darkly. It was bad enough to contemplate Helen's marriage and distant prospect, but the sudden, almost peremptory desire for marrying at Eastertide, a little less than two months away, was absurd. There were business reasons arising from the presidential campaign in the fall, John Taylor had telegraphed, but there was already too much business in the arrangement to suit the colonel. With Harry it was different. Indeed, it was his own quiet suggestion that made John Taylor hurry matters. Harry trusted to the novelty of his father's new wealth to make the latter complacent. He himself felt an impatient longing for the haven of a home. He had been too long untethered. He distrusted himself. The devil within was too fond of taking the bit in his teeth. He would remember to his dying day one awful shriek in the night, as of a soul tormenting and tormented. He wanted the protection of a good woman, and sometimes against the clear whiteness of her letter so joyous and generous, even if a bit prim and didactic, he saw a vision of himself reflected as he was, and he feared. It was distinctively disconcerting to Colonel Cresswell to find Harry quite in favor of early nuptials, and to learn that the sole objection even in Helen's mind was the improbability of getting a wedding gown in time. Helen had all of a child's naive love for beautiful and dainty things, and a wedding gown from Paris had been her life dream. On this point, therefore, there ensued spirited arguments and much correspondence, and both her brother and her lover evinced characteristic interest in the planning. Said Harry, "'Sis, I'll cable to Paris today. They can easily hurry the thing along.' Helen was delighted, 
She handed over a telegram just received from John Taylor. Send me express two bales, best cotton you can get. The colonel read the message. I don't see the connection between this and hurrying up a wedding gown, he growled. None of them discern the handwriting of destiny. Neither do I, said Harry, who detected yielding in his father's tone. But we'd better send him the two prize bales. It will be a fine advertisement for our plantation, and evidently he has a surprise in store for us. The colonel affected to hesitate, but next morning the silver fleece went to town. Zora watched it go, and her heart swelled and died within her. She walked to town to the station. She did not see Mrs. Vanderpool arriving from New Orleans, but Mrs. Vanderpool saw her and looked curiously at the tall, tragic figure that leaned so dolorously beside the freight car. The bales were loaded into the express car. The train pulled away, its horse snorting waking vague echoes in the forest beyond. But to the girl who stood at the end looking outward to darkness, those echoes roared like the crack of doom. A passing band of contract hands called to her mockingly, and one black giant laughing loudly gripped her hand. Come, honey, he shouted. You's a dreamin'. Come on, honey. She turned abruptly and gripped his hand as one drowning grips anything offered, gripped till he winced. She laughed a loud, mirthless laugh that came pouring like a sob from her deep lungs. Come on, she mocked and joined them. They were a motley crowd, ragged, swaggering, jolly, there were husky, big-limbed youths and bold-faced, loud-tongued girls. Tomorrow they would start up-country to some backwoods barony in the Kingdom of Cotton and work till Christmas time. Today was the last in town. There was craftily advanced money in their pockets and riot in their hearts. In the gathering twilight they marched noisily through the streets, in their mist, wide-eyed and laughing almost hysterically, marched Zora. Mrs. Vanderpool, meantime, rode thoughtfully out of town toward Cresswell Oaks. She was returning from witnessing the Mardi Gras festivities in New Orleans, and at the urgent invitation of the Cresswells had stopped off. She might even stay to the wedding if the new plans matured. Mrs. Vanderpool was quite upset. Her French maid, on whom she had depended absolutely for five years or more, had left her. I think I want to try a colored maid she told the Cresswells laughingly as they drove home. They have sweet voices, and they can't doff their uniform. Helene, without her cap and apron, was often mistaken for a lady. And while I was in New Orleans, a French confectioner married her under some such delusion. Now haven't you got a girl about here who would do? No, declared Harry decisively. But his sister suggested that she might ask Miss Smith at the colored school. Again, Mrs. Vanderpool laughed, but after tea, she wandered idly down the road. The sun behind the swamp was crimsoning the world. Mrs. Vanderpool strolled alone to the school and saw Sarah Smith. There was no cordiality in the latter's greeting, but when she heard the caller's errand, her attention was at once arrested and held. The interests of her charges were always uppermost in her mind. Can't I have that girl, Zora? Mrs. Vanderpool at last inquired. Miss Smith started, for she was thinking of Zora at that very instant. The girl was later than usual, and she was momentarily expecting to see her tall form moving languidly up the walk. She gave Mrs. Vanderpool a searching look. 
Mrs. Vanderpool glanced involuntarily at her gown and smiled as she did it. "'Could I trust you with a human soul?' asked Miss Smith abruptly. Mrs. Vanderpool looked up quickly. The half-mocking answer that rose involuntarily to her lips was checked. Within, Mrs. Vanderpool was a little puzzled at herself. Why had she asked for this girl? She had felt a strange interest in her, a peculiar human interest since she first saw her, and as she saw her again this afternoon. But would she make a satisfactory maid? Was it not a rather dangerous experiment? Why had she asked for her? She certainly had not intended to when she entered the house. In the silence, Miss Smith continued, Here is a child in whom the fountains of the great deep are suddenly broken up. With peace and care she would find herself, for she is strong. But here there is no peace. Slavery of soul and body awaits her, and I am powerless to protect her. She must go away. That going away may make or ruin her. She knows nothing of working for wages, and she has not the servant's humility. But she has loyalty and pluck. For one she loves, there is nothing she would not do. But she cannot be driven. Or rather, if she is driven, it may rouse in her the devil incarnate. She needs not exactly affection. She would almost resent that, but intelligent interest and care. In return for this, she will gradually learn to serve and serve loyally. Frankly, Mrs. Vanderpool, I would not have chosen you for this task of human education. Indeed, you would have been my last thought. You seem to me, I speak plainly, a worldly woman. Yet perhaps, who can tell? God has especially set you to this task. At any rate, I have little choice. I am at my wit's end. Elspeth, the mother of this child, is not long dead. And here is the girl, beautiful, unprotected. And here am I, almost helpless. She is in debt to the Cresswells, and they are pressing the claim to her service. Take her, if you can get her. It is, I fear, her only chance. Mind you, if you can persuade her. And that may be impossible. Where is she now? Miss Smith glanced out at the darkening landscape and then at her watch. I don't know. She's very late. She's given to wandering, but usually she is here before this time. I saw her in town this afternoon, said Mrs. Vanderpool. Zora? In town? Miss Smith rose. I'll send her to you tomorrow, she said quietly. Mrs. Vanderpool had hardly reached the Oaks before Miss Smith was driving toward town. A small cabin on the town's ragged fringe was crowded to suffocation. Within arose noisy shouts, loud songs, and raucous laughter. The scraping of a fiddle and whine of an accordion. Liquor began to appear and happy faces grew red-eyed and sodden as the dances whirled. At the end of the orgy stood Zora, wild-eyed and bewildered, mad with the pain that gripped her heart and hammered in her head crying in tune with the frenzied music. The and, the and. Abruptly, she recognized a face despite the wreck and ruin of its beauty. Betty, she cried as she seized the mother of little Emma by the arm. The woman staggered and offered her glass. Drink, she cried. Drink and forget. In a moment, Zora sprang forward and seized the burning liquid in both hands. A dozen hands clapped a devil's tattoo. A score of voices yelled and laughed. 
The shriek of the music was drowned beneath the thunder of stamping feet. Men reeled to singing women's arms, but above the roar rose the song of the voice of Zora. She glided to the middle of the room, standing tiptoed with skirts that curled and turned. She threw back her head, raised the liquor to her lips, paused, and looked into the face of Miss Smith. A silence fell like a lightning flash on the room as that white face peered in at the door. Slowly Zora's hands fell and her eyes blinked as though waking from some awful dream. She staggered toward the woman's outstretched arms. Late that night, the girl lay close in Miss Smith's motherly embrace. I was going to hell, she whispered, trembling. Why, Zora? asked Miss Smith calmly. I couldn't find the way, and I wanted to forget. People in hell don't forget, was the matter-of-fact comment. And Zora, what way do you seek? The way where? Zora sat up in bed and lifted a gray and stricken face. It's a lie, she cried with hoarse earnestness. The way nowhere. There is no way. You know, I want him. I want nothing on earth but him. And him I can't ever have. The older woman drew her down tenderly. No, Zora, she said. There's something you want more than him. And something you can have. What? asked the wondering girl. His respect, said Sarah Smith. And I know the way. End of chapter 20 Mrs. Vanderpool watched Zora as she came up the path beneath the oaks. She walks well, she observed, and laying aside her book she waited with a marked curiosity. The girl's greeting was brief, almost curt, but unintentionally so, as one could easily see, for back in her eyes lurked an impatient hunger. She was not thinking of greetings. She murmured a quick word and stood straight and tall with her eyes squarely on the lady. In the depths of Mrs. Vanderpool's heart something strange, not new but very old, stirred. Before her stood this tall black girl, quietly returning her look. Mrs. Vanderpool had a most uncomfortable sense of being judged, of being weighed, and there arose within her an impulse of self-justification. She smiled and said sweetly, won't you sit? But despite all this, her mind seemed leaping backward a thousand years, back to a simpler primal day when she herself, white, frail, and fettered, stood before the dusky magnificence of some bejeweled barbarian queen and sought to justify herself. She shook off the fantasy, and yet how well the girl stood. It was not everyone that could stand still and well. Please sit down, she repeated with her softest charm, not dreaming that outside the school white persons did not ask this girl to sit in their presence. But even this did not move Zora. She sat down. There was in her, walking, standing, sitting, a simple directness which Mrs. Vanderpool sensed and met. Zora, I need someone to help me, to do my hair and serve my coffee and dress and take care of me. The work will not be hard. You can travel and see the world and live well. Would you like it? But I do not know how to do all these things, returned Zora slowly. She was thinking rapidly. Was this the way? It sounded wonderful. The world, the great mysterious world that stretched beyond the swamp into which Bless and the Silver Fleece had gone. Did it lead to the way? But if she went there, what would she see and do? 
And would it be possible to become such a woman as Miss Smith pictured? What is the world like? asked Zora. Mrs. Vanderpool smiled. Oh, I meant great active cities and buildings, myriads of people and wonderful sights. Yes, but back of it all, what is it really? What does it look like? Heavens, child, don't ask. Really, it isn't worthwhile peering back of things. One is sure to be disappointed. Then what's the use of seeing the world? Why, one must live, and why not be happy? Answered Mrs. Vanderpool, amused, baffled, spurred for the time being from her chronic ennui. Are you happy? Retorted Zora, looking over her carefully. From silken stockings to garden hat, Mrs. Vanderpool laid aside her little mockery and met the situation bravely. No, she replied simply. Her eyes grew old and tired. Involuntarily, Zora's hand crept out protectingly and lay a moment over the white jeweled fingers. Then, quickly recovering herself, she started hastily to withdraw it. But the woman's fingers closed around her darker ones, and Mrs. Vanderpool's eyes became dim. I need you, Zora, she said, and then, seeing the half formed question, Yes, and you need me. We need each other. In the world lies opportunity, and I will help you. Zora rose abruptly, and Mrs. Vanderpool feared with a tightening of heart that she had lost this strangely alluring girl. I will come tomorrow, said Zora. As Mrs. Vanderpool went in to lunch, reaction and lingering doubts came trooping back to replace the daintiest of trained experts with the most baffling semi barbarian. Well, have you had a maid? asked Helen. I've engaged Zora, laughed Mrs. Vanderpool lightly, and now I'm wondering whether I have a jewel or a white elephant. Probably neither, remarked Harry Cresswell dryly, but he avoided the lady's inquiring eyes. Next morning, Zora came easily into Mrs. Vanderpool's life. There was little she knew of her duties, but little, too, that she could not learn with a deftness and divination almost startling. Her quietness, her quickness, her young strength were like a soothing balm to the tired woman of fashion, and within a week she had sunk back contentedly into Zora's strong arms. It's a jewel, she decided. With this verdict, the house agreed. The servants waited on Miss Zora gladly. The men scarcely saw her, and the ladies ran to her for help in all sorts. Harry Cresswell looked upon this transformation with an amused smile. But the colonel saw in it simply evidence of dangerous obstinacy in a black girl who hitherto had refused to work. Zora had been in the house but a week when a large express package was received from John Taylor. Its unwrapping brought a cry of pleasure from the ladies. There lay a bolt of silken like cambric of wondrous fineness and luster, marked for the wedding dress. The explanation accompanied the package that Mary Taylor had a similar piece in the north. Helen and Harry said nothing of the cablegram to the Paris tailor, and Helen took no steps toward having the cambric dress made, not even when the wedding invitations appeared. A Cresswell married in cotton? Helen was almost in tears lest the Paris gown be delayed, and sure enough, a cablegram came at last saying that there was little likelihood of the gown being ready by Easter. It would be shipped at the earliest convenience, but it could hardly catch the necessary boat. Helen had a good cry, and then came a wild rush to get John Taylor's cloth ready. Still, Helen was querulous. 
She decided that silk embroidery might embellish the skirt. The dressmaker was in despair. I haven't a single spare worker, she declared. Helen was appealing to Mrs. Vanderpool. I can do it, said Zora, who was in the room. Do you know how? asked the dressmaker. No, but I want to know. Mrs. Vanderpool gave a satisfied nod. Show her, she said. The dressmaker was on the edge of rebellion. Zora sews beautifully, added Mrs. Vanderpool. Thus the beautiful cloth came to Zora's room and was spread in a glossy cloud over her bed. She trembled at its beauty and felt a vague inner yearning, as if some subtle magic of the woven web was trying to tell her its story. She worked over it faithfully and lovingly in every spare hour and in long nights of dreaming. Willfully she departed from the set pattern and sewed into the cloth something of the beauty in her heart, in new and intricate ways, with soft shadowings and coverings. She wove in that white veil her own strange soul, and Mrs. Vanderpool watched her curiously, but in silence. Meantime all things were arranged for a double wedding at Cresswell Oaks. As John and Mary Taylor had no suitable home, they were to come down and the two brides to go forth from the Cresswell mansion. Accordingly, the Taylors arrived a week before the wedding and the home took on a festive air. Even Colonel Cresswell expanded under the genial influences and while his head still protested, his heart was glad. He had to respect John Taylor's undoubted ability and Mary Taylor was certainly lovely in spite of that assumption of cleverness of which the Colonel could not approve. Mary returned to the old scenes with mingled feelings, especially was she startled at seeing Zora a member of the household and apparently high in favor. It brought back something of the old uneasiness and suspicion. All this she soon forgot under the cadence of Harry Cresswell's pleasant voice and the caressing touch of his arm. He seemed handsomer than ever, and he was, for sleep and temperance and the wooing of a woman had put a tinge in his marble face smooth the puffs beneath his eyes and given him a more distinguished bearing and a firmer hand and mary taylor was very happy so was her brother only differently he was making money he was planning to make more and he had something to pet which seemed to him extraordinarily precious and valuable taylor eagerly inquired after the cloth and followed the ladies to zora's room adjoining mrs vanderpool's to see it it lay uncut and shimmering, covered with dim silken tracery of a delicacy and beauty which brought an exclamation to all lips. That's what we can do with Alabama cotton, cried John Taylor in triumph. They turned to him incredulously. But no buts about it. These are the two bales you sent me, woven with a silk wolf. No one particularly noticed as Zora had hastily left the room. I had it done in Easterly's New Jersey mills according to an old plan of mine. I'm going to make cloth like that right in this county some day. And he chuckled gaily. But Zora was striding up and down the halls, the blood surging in her ears. After they were gone, she came back and closed the doors. She dropped on her knees and buried her face in the filmy folds of the silver fleece. I knew it. I knew it, she whispered in mingled tears and joy. It called, and I did not understand. It was her talisman newfound, her love come back, her stolen dream come true. Now she could face the world. God had turned it straight again. She would go into the world and find, not love, but the thing greater than love. Outside the door came voices, the dressmaker's tones. 
Helen's soft drawl, and Mrs. Vanderpool's finished accents. Her face went suddenly gray. The silver fleece was not hers. It belonged. She rose hastily. The door opened and they came in. The cutting must begin at once, they all agreed. Is it ready, Zora? inquired Helen. No, Zora quietly answered. Not quite, but tomorrow morning, early. As soon as she was alone again, she sat down and considered. By and by, while the family was at lunch, she folded the silver fleece carefully and locked it in her new trunk. She would hide it in the swamp. During the afternoon, she sent to town for oilcloth and bade the black carpenter at Miss Smith's make a cedar box tight and tarred. In the morning, she prepared Mrs. Vanderpool's breakfast with unusual care. She was sorry for Mrs. Vanderpool and sorry for Miss Smith. They would not, they could not understand what would happen to her. She did not know. She did not care. The silver fleece had returned to her. Soon it would be buried in the swamp whence it came. She had no alternative. She must keep it and wait. She heard the dressmaker's voice and then her step upon the stair. She heard the sound of Harry Cresswell's buggy and the scurrying at the front door. On came the dressmaker's footsteps. Then her door was unceremoniously burst open. Helen Cresswell stood there radiant. The dressmaker, too, was wreathed in smiles. She carried a big red sealed bundle. Zora! cried Helen in ecstasy. It's come! Zora regarded her coldly and stood at bay. The dressmaker was ripping and snipping, and soon there lay revealed before them the Paris gown. Helen was in raptures, but her conscience pricked her. She appealed to them. Ought I to tell? You see, Mary's gown will look miserably common beside it. The dressmaker was voluble. There was really nothing to tell. And besides, Helen was a Cresswell, and it was to be expected, and so forth. Helen pursed her lips and petulantly tapped the floor with her foot. But the other gown? Where is it? asked the dressmaker, looking about. It would make a pretty morning dress. But Helen had taken a sudden dislike to the thought of it. I don't want it, she declared. And besides, I haven't room for it in my trunks. Of a sudden, she leaned down and whispered to Zora. Zora, hide it and keep it if you want it. Come to the dressmaker. I'm dying to try this on now. Remember, Zora, not a word. And all this to Zora seemed no surprise. It was the way. And it was opening before her because the talisman lay in her trunk. So at last it came to Easter morning. The world was golden with jasmine and crimson with azalea. Down in the darker places gleamed the misty glory of the dogwood. New cotton shook, glimmered, and blossomed in the black fields. And over all the soft southern sun poured its awakening light of life. There was happiness and hope again in the cabins. And hope and, if not happiness, Ambition in the mansions. Zora, almost forgetting the wedding, stood before the mirror. Laying aside her dress, she draped her shimmering cloth about her, dragging her hair down in a heavy mass over ears and neck until she seemed herself a bride. And as she stood there, awed with the mystical union of a dead love and a living newborn self, there came drifting in at the window, faintly, the soft sound of far off marriage music. "'Tis thy marriage morning shining in the sun." Two white and white-swathed brides were coming slowly down the great staircase of Cresswell Oaks, and two white and black-clothed bridegrooms awaited them. 
Either bridegroom looked gladly at the flow of his sister's garments and almost darkly at his bride's, for Helen was decked in Parisian splendor, while Mary was gowned in the fleece. "'Tis thy marriage morning shining in the sun!' up floated the song of the little dark-faced children, and Zora listened. End of chapter 21